So, Linda, we agreed to talk about something that, unlike most of the stuff you do, which is scientific, is goes into speculation um, and about, in a way, the nature of um, uh, that nature of the o- human operating system that might create what is sometimes called faith healing, but not ascribing it to um, uh, transcendent influence. Yeah, I mean, so I might even um, question your statement that there's no evidence to support that. And I guess to contextualize it, the way I think of um, what you're talking about really is just the power of the mind. So some people call it placebo, you know, and downplay it saying, yes, well, they got better, but it was just, you know, it was a placebo effect, which to me is actually amazing that um, the power of expectancy, um, you know, people expecting a certain outcome makes it more likely to come to pass. And they're not just imagining it. It really does affect what's happening physiologically in the body. And, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the research, like the neuroscience research even on the placebo effect and looking at what what's happening in the brain and in the body. Well, Maybe that's a, it would be a good thing to, to talk a little bit about that, because as you point out, uh, in a way, instead of dismissing the placebo effect, it's, it's actually showing how incredibly powerful it is. You know, in some of the earliest research in the area of psychoneuroimmunology, um, you know, which is a young area of research, but back in the 50s was classical conditioning of immune responses in mice. So it may sound like that's not related to this, but it is because what they did, and you might be familiar with these studies, is to pair an immune-suppressing um, chemical in, in water that mice would drink. So maybe they hear a, a buzzer or something like that, or they drink, the, actually I think it was just pairing the taste. So they drink the sweet water, and it was immune-suppressant, and so they're, immune cells would, um, you know, decrease in their function and they would feel sick. Um, And that was actually happening because of the substance in the water. But over time, they took the sweet water without the chemical in it, so it was just water at that point. But Mm -hmm. when the rats would drink it, they were so conditioned that that taste, um, it actually triggered this conditioned immune suppression. Hmm. So there was nothing, there's no chemical doing that, it was just their mind, right? Mm-hmm, Associating mm-hmm. that sweet taste with depressed immunity. So they did it themselves because they had that expectation that that meant that was going to be the outcome. But So in a way, uh, all classical conditioning is the same effect. Exactly, yeah, yeah, because you're pairing a stimulus in the environment, you know, that actually produces an outcome, say it's pain or whatever it is, immune suppression, you know, with the unconditioned stimulus, which has nothing to do with the pain originally, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm. point where now you just hear the bell or you taste the stuff and you have the same response, even though now you're just creating it in your mind. Yeah, yeah, so Pavlov is a pioneer of uh, mind-body medicine. Really? I mean, you could think of it that way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the sense uh, that, uh, you know, in a way to make the people who are, you know, the, the word placebo itself has such a negative connotation because placebo mm-hmm. means something that's useless, that's uh, that's totally innocuous. And so we're making, we're talking about placebo effect as opposed to the placebo itself. And in a way, what makes the placebo effect that much stronger is how innocuous the placebo is. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it because the placebo, as you said, can be anything, a pill, an expectation, you know, uh, some kind of environmental stimulus, but it's the association that a person's made in their mind with whatever that stimulus is. And it can harness the incredible power of 
of the mind of expectancy to influence what's happening in the whole system. You know, people make this false distinction, I think, between the mind and the body. Well, they're no different. They're interconnected. You know, there's neurons in the gut, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, what you're thinking and feeling, it translates throughout the entire body through a whole wide range of physiological systems. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's no surprise it affects your physical health, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, but I think it's super complex, too, so I, I don't think I'd ever go or I'd be comfortable going so far as to say you can think yourself well. You know, in some cases, and I work with cancer patients, that's a bit of a Pollyanna unrealistic approach. You know, I think it's one element among many, and it's very complex in terms of what determines the progression and the development of disease and illness. Yeah, so maybe that's a part of it. You've used the word complex, and maybe that's a part of uh, staying with the idea. It's, you know, we're talking about complex processes, so it's not one-dimensional, it's not one variable, it's not all or nothing, but mm-hmm. it plays a role, and we don't exactly know how much of a role, but exactly. yeah, in a complex process. Exactly, yeah, and I think teasing all that apart is, again, very difficult and complex, and it's going to vary you know, from situation to situation and individual to individual. Mm-hmm. But some of the research you did actually kind of starts to to uh, to go in that direction a little bit about mm-hmm. the, you know, treatment preferences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can tell you a bit about that. So, you know, we had done a, a what's more of a traditional randomized controlled trial design where you take a group of similar people. In this case, it was breast cancer survivors, you know, you randomly assign them to different treatments. So in our case, it was a mindfulness meditation group, um, and a second group was more of a traditional support group, and a third group was a minimal intervention, more like a usual care control group. Um, and then we looked at different outcomes of those interventions over time, and, you know, overall it turned out that, for example, the mindfulness intervention had better outcomes on um, reducing stress or improving mood. But then we also asked people at the beginning, before they were randomized, they didn't have a choice about what group they got, but we asked them, if you did have a choice, which group were you hoping to get? And they knew what the three options were. Um, So we recorded that information and then did kind of a post-hoc analysis looking at, okay, so we know that people who were randomized to, you know, certain groups had these outcomes, but what if we look at the impact of getting what you wanted? Mm -hmm. Because not everybody wanted the same thing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So when we did it that way, we looked at, okay, what did people want and what did they get? And then divided people into those who got what they wanted, and this could be any of the three groups, or people who didn't get what they wanted, and then compared them on outcomes. Um, And it turns out that that also predicted outcomes. So people who got what they wanted, whether it was a support group or it was meditation, and some people even wanted the usual care, you know, they did better on a couple of the outcomes. Not all of them, um, but a couple of them, they improved more. Yeah, yeah. So, so at 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 one level, it's it's hard not to hypothesize that, you know, what happened is the treatment they believe in is going to be more effective than one they don't. Absolutely, and I think that's you know a key thing that's not often taken into consideration in traditional randomized controlled trials because I think it's probably more important than we have thought in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so. I'm curious about relating this to, say, shamanic practices and to say that the shamanic practices were integrated in a belief system 
And uh, so that, in a way, instead of looking down on it, and so it's mumbo-jumbo, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's actually something about harnessing the power of, you know, that innate ability, that expectancy. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. You know, a lot of the rituals and, you know, they're, I don't know if they're devised this way, but they have the outcome of, you know, making people really believe that they're doing something important and effective. Um, And so... I think a lot of the outcome might be just that, that, you know, the ritual harnessing the expectancy and the belief that this is going to be helpful, you know, maybe combined with, depending on what the practice is, you know, some quote-unquote real effects, right? Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, the part, or even if it's necessary to differentiate that, you know, I don't think we understand that piece yet. Yeah, but so what we're talking about is that it's a, it's a process of getting people involved in something that they're going to believe in, mm-hmm. uh, that they believe in, so that it enlists, in a way, their sense of trust and hope. Yeah, and I'm just thinking of another study I just saw recently on acupuncture. Mm-hmm. It was uh, June Mao at um, University of Pennsylvania. And they did two different um, placebo treatments, and I think it was acupuncture for treating um, pain after cancer treatment. And they compared real acupuncture to what they call sham acupuncture. So, you know, they go through all the motions and make people believe they're getting acupuncture, but they put the needles in wrong. Um, so that harnesses the belief in acupuncture. But then they also had a pill group, like a pain opioid painkiller, where they got a real pain pill and then a placebo pain pill. Mm-hmm. So they were able to look at how effective those two different placebos were on outcomes compared to the two different real treatments. And they found there was some effective placebo, but it was stronger in the acupuncture placebo than in the pill placebo. Hmm. So people in that study must have believed more in the acupuncture being beneficial than they did in the pill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So even the placebo effect, you know, is variable depending, I think, on the level of, of buy-in or belief from the participants. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about enlisting the uh, the buy-in, the level of belief from the participant, and and many of the, the people who listen to this are therapists. So that's definitely a part of in our work. Uh, the question of to what extent we can enlist and create a therapeutic alliance between the therapist and the client, uh, mm-hmm. so that there is um, a sense of believing in a good way, not not in a sense of uh, uh, misleading somebody into believing something, uh, you know, for, to con them, but enlisting a common belief and a sense of purpose. Yeah, and that makes me think of, you know, why potentially a lot of um, the cognitive behavioral therapy interventions are so effective because the approach there is that the client and the therapist are a team, right, and they're working together and they're doing something effective, you know, and it it brings out this, this feeling of participation and there's a very strong therapeutic alliance with the client and, you know, they're doing the work themselves. And, you know, I think that relationship factor and that um, team, that feeling of, you know, we're in it together and we're going to work through this and there's lots that we can do and it's very hopeful, I think that, it's probably a large part of why those interventions may be helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, by the way, some of us would say is not necessarily the realm of CBT, but is <laughs> other other areas as well, you know, but, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, what's important in that therapy situation, whatever the modality might be, is that feeling of working together and, you know, um, being engaged in the practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I want to come back to the... 
experiments, uh, the study you did about uh, the, the types of treatment and uh, where uh, we were talking about the belief system of people influencing, you know, what the effectiveness of it. I'm struck that when you were describing it, uh, you said, you know, they got what they wanted. And so that statement, um, in a way, could be they got what they believed in. Mm-hmm. But there is also like a nuance about, in a way, uh, they got what they wanted gives a little bit more of a sense of empowerment. Uh, you know where I'm going with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a sense of agency. A sense of agency, a sense that it's not, you know, they're being treated and their wishes are disregarded. Mm-hmm. But in a way, they, you know, they, it was not quite a situation where uh, they asked and they were given a choice of what they had. But in a way, it's something a little bit similar to a prayer because they have a preference, a preferred outcome or a preferred solution, and it happens to be what happens, you know, in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so there's a feeling of, oh, I'm so lucky. I was hoping to get this and I got it. Yeah. And that must be a good sign and things are going to go well for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, could be for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know, again, as, as we're talking about this, we're in the realm of hypothesis as opposed to facts. But how do you think, you know, this happens? What, what do you think makes this happen? You mean what happens physiologically? Yeah, physiologically. What happens in the, you know, in the whole thing, in the mind-body, the, in the organism? Um, yeah, I mean, there could be a number of different, you know, there's a number of different pathways we know are involved in the stress response and, um, the interconnection between the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, um, which is your first line kind of reaction in stressful situations. So um, you get that reactivity where the adrenal glands are secreting high levels of cortisol, and that's, you know, what happens when you have acute stress but also under chronic stress. And when it's chronic stress and chronically um, high levels of secretion of cortisol, then that also downregulates the immune system. Um, which can have further impact on different, you know, hormonal systems. And there's feedback loops, you know, in the brain and the body, and you can get these kind of downward spirals that increase susceptibility to different types of disease, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the negative loop. Um, so it's possible that by triggering someone's, you know, expectancy that things are going to get better, you can somehow, uh, you know, get in there and um, interrupt the sort of spirals you get within these different physiological systems, you know, and there's also the whole sympathetic, um, parasympathetic nervous system that's interacting there as well, right? So, I mean, it's very complex, and I don't know on the molecular level exactly what the step weights, you know, the pathways or the steps um, might be for how that works, but I think people are beginning to look at that a little bit more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, just to try and see if I follow you, uh, there is, in a way, a vicious cycle of stress where um, things keep going worse once you, you get into the vicious cycle, and the counterbalance, the countervortex, would be uh, something where actually there, there's a calming effect, you know, a counterbalance to the uh, uh, to the, the cycle of worsening stress. Uh that would be activated by this, and that could be something that's a parasympathetic uh, nervous system and the calming part of... Um, yeah, so the parasympathetic or vagal reactivity that happens when you have, um, you know, the relaxation response, or that can be triggered by feeling a sense of safety as well or a sense of control, because often people going through traumatic or difficult times, you know, with illness or 
personal difficulties they'll have, that sense of loss of control, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which can trigger that stress reactivity. So feeling like you're doing something, feeling empowered, I think is more likely to rebalance the HPA and, you know, increase the vagal tone and decrease the sympathetic reactivity, which also will have downstream effects on what's happening with some of the endocrine and immune systems. And as well, you know, cognitive functioning in the brain. I mean, it all it all sort of feeds into one another. And, you know, that's not even getting into all the stuff we know now about um, the whole gut axis and the microbiome and how that influences psychology and physiology. You know, it's just amazingly complex, and I don't pretend to understand even an iota of it, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in a in a big picture way, uh, what is interesting is we're not talking about the ability to heal in isolation, but we're talking about two poles, uh, and in a way something where uh, there is a position where stress. Uh, decreases that ability to heal or actually increases the uh, tendency to get uh, damage. And conversely, the other pole, yeah. There's very direct effects of, Mm -hmm. you know, stress reactivity on, for example, immune function and looking at, um, you know, inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory processes, which have been directly linked to different diseases, like cardiovascular disease and Mm -hmm. um, even different types of cancers and things, right? And, yeah, so there's... A lot of research that's beginning to piece together um, these different links about what what might be going on there, and lots of models and hypotheses about mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and many people are testing various parts of these different models and chains to try and understand better how it all fits together. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that in a way, since it's very, it, it's it's much more accepted and established that stress has these effects, then it's not so much of a stretch, of a stretch to see that on the other hand, uh, you know, the the calming of stress would have the opposite effect. Potentially, yeah. Yeah. And and so we're talking about maybe something that's not so much about or. Um, a belief, but something that has, um, uh, you know, you, that's why you used the word expectancy before. So a sense that, uh, you know, something that it's an outcome that seems reasonable, some kind of hope uh, that is based on, it's, it's not an unrealistic hope. Yeah, I mean, and who's to say what's realistic and what's unrealistic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you, we haven't used the word hope yet, but I, I, it'd be interesting and I think people maybe are beginning to understand the physiology of hope, right, because that's optimism. There's lots of research on how optimism is linked to better health. Um, so those different kind of positive um, feelings or processes, you know, may have similar biological pathways. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, hope in general can be related to better health. And in your experience, you actually deal with people who are in uh, more extreme situations. You deal with cancer patients. So how how do people find hope? Well, you know, in the cancer world, we talk about uh, shifting hope. Um, so we believe that hope is important. And you, you mentioned realistic hope, and I guess that's something that we promote is the idea that there's always something to hope for, and it might be as simple as, I hope I have a good day. You know, I hope my pain's not too bad today. I hope I, you know, get to spend time with my grandparents, right, or my grandkids. And it might not be, you know, I hope I live for 40 years, right? Mm-hmm. So the the hope, that feeling of something to look forward to and something, you know, something there to be 
giving you meaning and purpose and motivating, I think, is really important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so a sense of, of being immersed in the reality of what is possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really being in the moment and, um, you know, not being optimistic in a Pollyanna-ish sense, like pretending none of this is happening and being in denial, because we also talk about the importance of acceptance, mm-hmm. right? It's seeing things clearly um, from the mindfulness perspective, is seeing what's there um, and recognizing the constant, constantly changing nature of all experience, but also being able to embrace the reality of experience and find some meaning in it and something, you know, something to hope for. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, um, obviously, in this case, you know, the phrase you just used, uh, uh, embrace the reality of what's happening and be able to find some meaning in it. Uh, this is not an abstraction. This is not, uh, you know, something about a philosophical idea about, yeah, this is nice night, because people are confronted with something. So, so um, you know, the experience of it is, is something different from just an abstract idea. Yeah, and for a lot of people, you know, we all have this abstract understanding that, you know, we're going to die at some point. Life is not endless. Mm-hmm. But we don't live that way. And having that experience with, cancer and hearing, you know, you have cancer or your loved one has cancer, it all of a sudden brings that into very sharp relief. And people have to come to terms with the fact that they may not live as long as they thought. You know, their days may be numbered. And so keeping that in mind, then how do you want to live your life, right? Where do you find meaning and purpose? And I I really think that for people to find, and it doesn't really matter what it is, what their purpose is or what brings them meaning, I think it's important to have that, though, or else you see people kind of floundering and, you know, well, now what? What's the point? Why am I here, you know, if I'm just going to die a horrible, painful death from this illness? Why even bother? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, in other words, um, we're not talking about there's a right and a wrong answer for what kind of purpose and meaning, but it's about uh, the experience of confronting reality and from there to get something that is the experience of purpose and meaning. Yeah, and it can be a huge range of things. You know, for many people, it's being with their family or it's service or it's just spending time with nature or, you know, doing a creative activity or it could be just a, a huge range of things. Um, and I don't think it really matters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in a way, uh, as you're talking about it this way, it's like, uh, you know, as if the situation itself uh, presents a big koan, you know, that's like, that's unresolvable by mm-hmm. rational means, and that whatever answer comes back is the form of engagement with reality that people come up with. Yeah, and I think even the process of seeking, seeking to understand or find meaning is um, really beneficial as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So maybe in a way to loop back to that research, um, is that, you know, part of that, you know, we were talking about, uh, that sense of, uh, you know, that hope and faith and uh, um, that placebo effect, that expectancy is also related to that sense of meaning. What it like uh, in a way in our conception of the world, uh, this, you know, for instance, acupuncture should work. Uh, and so, you know, it's related to, you know, belief is related to meaning in that sense. Yeah, I think you could draw that line um, in, in the way you're talking about. And, 
Yeah, I mean, in our studies, we've sort of looked at at the idea of, we call it spirituality or post-traumatic growth or benefit finding after cancer. So, you know, that sense of meaning and purpose and connectedness to something larger than yourself. Mm -hmm. We've looked at that more as an outcome of the types of interventions we do, um, but I see it also as a process right, where um, you've got, I guess, maybe an expectancy or a belief that, you know, some kind of process is going to bring you to a place where there's meaning and purpose in your life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you say in the study itself, uh, you've looked at it as an outcome in saying people who go through this process, uh, you know, tend to then have more of a, uh, a sense of meaning, purpose, spirit, um, but it can also be understood that the uh, paying attention to meaning, purpose, and spirit is what helps people uh, better deal with the situation. Yeah, I think I think you could look at it that way for sure. Mm-hmm. 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 So that feels great. That feels very nice. Uh, is there something that you would want to add? Well, you know, just that we're exploring this idea a little bit more in the next study that we're going to be doing so the design of the study is where um, same kind of idea we're comparing the mindfulness intervention to another mind body intervention in this case it's a tai chi qigong mm-hmm. group um, and so what we're going to do is ask people right up front which group do you prefer which one are you hoping to get and if they have a preference then they get it um, okay yeah so they're not randomized so if they say i really want to learn mindfulness then that's what they get you know if they have an interest in tai chi they get that but there'll be a certain proportion of patients who are like, well, you know, I'm interested in both. And so then that group who have no strong preference will be randomized, mm-hmm, like a traditional mm-hmm. randomized trial. Mm-hmm, so they'll mm-hmm. be randomized into either the mindfulness or the Tai Chi. And then we'll be able to compare the people and say, for example, in the mindfulness group, the ones who are randomized to it and the ones who chose it and compare the outcomes and see if there's a much stronger effect of the program in those who had the initial preference. Right, right, right. And so when you talk about mindfulness, you mean mindfulness meditation? Yeah, so it's an adaptation of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program Mm -hmm. that we do. So it's eight weeks of training in mindfulness meditation and very gentle yoga. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we'll be looking at that group and just comparing it to, you know, a similar length program that focuses more on the traditional Qigong and Tai Chi practices. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so and then we're looking at a range of outcomes, including those kind of um, what we call benefit-finding or spirituality-meaning type of outcomes, as well as we're looking at a whole host of biological outcomes, too. So, you know, looking right in the cell at the length of telomeres at the end of chromosomes and looking at the level of the gene, you know, gene expression of different different cytokines and all sorts of biomarkers. So we'll be able to begin to understand, you know, what's happening in the body in these different groups of people, you know, who have a preference or not and who are doing these interventions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So part of it are going to be physiological, you know, yeah. and uh, part of it uh, you describe as something related to, uh, uh, say, a spiritual belief. Uh, yeah, and also the usual kind of psychological, like, symptom outcomes as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and what's interesting is um, in some way, uh, it's a great study because, uh, you know, in addition to everything else, but compared to, say, a pill versus this, both Tai Chi and mindfulness meditation are processes that involve people 
uh, into doing something and into getting, um, you know, getting involved in a, in a process of change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're both, you know, really um, self-engagement kind of, self-empowerment, and they're both group uh, interventions. So they're very similar. It'll be interesting to see where the differences emerge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that in a way, it's not going to be about self uh, self engagement uh, or active participation versus not, but to mm-hmm. see whether there is a difference between two forms of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, getting more at the question of specificity and for whom is what type of intervention going to be best? Hmm. So, how do you measure for whom it's best? Because you have some differences between people at the beginning. Well, yeah, we look at what we call moderator analyses, right? So you look at, we did this in our previous study, too. We looked at a whole bunch of variables like personality, you know, people who are more uh, extroverted or introverted or, you know, more um, open to experience or so using um, standard measures of personality traits um, to see if that predicts who does better or looking at men versus women or the type of cancer they have or their age, you know, their educational level. Like we can take into account all those things and see if they, predict who's going to do better in the different interventions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, again, so, so the, the continuation is that, in a way, we, you've really gotten way past the, the old paradigm of, say, um, is there a benefit to, uh, to this expectancy effect or not? But given that there is a benefit, uh, let's now try to understand better in what way it works for different people. It's not just one effect, but it's going to be tailored to different people and we understand better in what way each, you know, it's going to be working for different people. Yeah, so it's that idea of personalized or precision medicine applied to the more psychosocial side of care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Well, thanks, Linda. Yeah, you're welcome. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Level, like we can take into account all those things and see if they predict who's going to do better in the different interventions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, again, so, so the, the continuation is that, in a way, we, you've really gotten way past the, the old paradigm of, say, um, is there... A benefit to uh, to this expectancy effect or not, but given that there is a benefit, uh, let's now try to understand better in what way it works for different people. It's not just one effect, but it's going to be tailored to different people, and we we'll understand better in what way each you know it's going to be working for different people. Yeah, so it's that idea of personalized or precision medicine applied to the more psychosocial side of care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Well, thanks, Linda. Yeah, you're welcome. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.